0: Pushkin. Hey, it's Noah. I want to tell you about a podcast from New York Magazine. It's called Pivot, and it's hosted by New York Magazine editor-at-large, Kara Swisher, and NYU business professor, Scott Galloway. Every Tuesday and Friday, Kara and Scott break down the major news stories of the week and take a sharp look at how they're changing the way we communicate, vote, shop, and live. You can expect razor-sharp insights, bold predictions, and a declaration of the week's big winners and losers. Cara and Scott banter and bicker at the speed of your Twitter feed, and the show is as funny as it is informative. So subscribe to Pivot with Cara Swisher and Scott Galloway for free in your favorite podcast app to get new episodes automatically from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Earlier this week, I had a terrific conversation with Boaz Weinstein, the founder and chief investment officer at Saba Capital Management. We got such great feedback for the conversation that we decided to give you a bonus, a further conversation that Boaz and I had about what happened in March when the bond markets appeared to break. For context, what you should keep in mind is that high-yield debt, so-called junk bonds, were long thought to be too risky to be held by ordinary investors. But in recent years, as a result of such vehicles as exchange-traded funds, ETFs, and mutual funds, more and more of the market in high-yield junk bonds has come to be held by consumers ultimately. That raises serious questions about safety and about whether what Boas calls the alchemy of packaging actually works. This part of the conversation goes really deep behind the
1: story, and I hope that you'll learn as much from it as I did. The dynamics in the market structure changed over the last decade dramatically in a way that I think caused it more or less in March to break. And and I don't think that story, because bonds are are followed far less than, than equities, the bond market breaking for a few days, really, to me, was one of the most shocking things I've seen in my career.
0: So let's dive into this moment where the bond market breaks. And I wanna take us back to the background. So take us back to when you first started in your business in the
1: 90s. What did the bond market
0: look like then?
1: So I I joined Wall Street after graduating college in '95. I was very influenced by the book Liars Poker, actually told by Michael Lewis, also a Pushkin podcast maker among many other distinctions. Yeah, you know, in that story, aside from all the humor, is is the point that the participants in the bond market that worked at these banks at the time, Solomon Brothers, or you know now Citigroup or Goldman Sachs, they were in their own minds and with the balance sheet given to them by the bank, enormous risk takers and could house risk if it came to them. They could act as a shock absorber. They didn't view themselves as a shock absorber if there were too many sellers. They viewed themselves as the world's greatest experts in junk bonds. At that time, there were very few hedge funds. And the, and most of the great credit hedge funds came out of banks, whether they were Drexel, Burnham, Lambert, or the ones after. And so if you had a big sell-off, really at any point in time from the 1980s through 2008, Every bank had a trading desk that was there to buy bonds without necessarily needing to sell them the same day or same week. They could buy them and house them if they felt like they were good investments. So the market makers were investors.
0: And just to clarify that for the civilian, if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying is, if a moment came where people who held bonds thought, oh boy, it's time for me to get rid of these bonds. They're too risky for me and they're more likely to default. And I'm willing to sell them at a low price. The big investment banks through their trading desks were like, great, we'll buy them from you at a low price. And then we'll just hang on to them till they are more valuable. And then we'll turn around and we'll make money on it. And we can afford to buy them from you low and hold on to them until the time comes to sell them higher. And that effectively wasn't their goal, of course, was to make money. But effectively, that meant that if there was a sudden moment where most people who held this debt said, oh my God, let me sell it, there was someone there to buy it.
1: Yes. So they provided balance to when there was a um a supply demand imbalance they they were the demand and in the last 10 years before the global financial crisis Every bank basically had various groups that were not facing customers, that were literally mini hedge funds inside of the bank, known as proprietary trading desks, who felt even more able to take on that risk because their mandate was to invest and not to trade with clients. And so you had enormous risk-taking capacity at the banks, and that's something that's measurable. Every week, the Federal Reserve reports what the aggregate number of bonds held by the investment banks was. And it, at times it was greater than one out of 10 bonds was held by these counterparties.
0: And then there came 2007, 2008, and everything changed. What, what happened to all of that debt that was being held by the proprietary trading desks in the crisis?
1: So, of course, they lost a lot of money in 2008. And, um, and by 2009, uh, even though they had recovered a lot and the banks actually posted their best years in history in this sort of trading, the Volcker Rule basically more or less banished that kind of risk-taking, not just by the proprietary traders, but importantly, by the market makers. And so if a client wanted to sell and the, the amount was not trivial, the bank was basically for all intents and purposes, not there to buy it if it didn't have a ready buyer or couldn't find one in short order. And so that really changed one side of the market structure, which was we took away the shock absorber and we took away the risk-taking capacity by the banks, even though, you know, when you think about it, a bank buying the bonds of, let's say, Boeing, a company that's uh, having its own share of troubles right now, if it loses money from doing so, Is it that different than the bank losing money for making a loan to Boeing? In both cases, they're supporting Boeing in the loan case as a primary lender and in the bond case as a, let's say, a secondary investor in an actual existing market. But, you know, aside from audit to be that way, the Volcker rule, though critiqued at the time by, you know, self-serving banks, but they might have had a point. We're saying, look, when clients come to sell and the liquidity is very different than it is in normal times, who's going to be there to buy? And so that's one side of the equation.
0: But can I push on that a little bit? So the Volcker Rule basically, I mean, I'm oversimplifying it drastically, but it basically said, we, the government, do not want big banks to be sitting on a lot of risky investments because it's nice when they make money, but when they don't make money and they're suddenly losing it, everything can go south very, very quickly and bring the financial system with it. If it was an effect of that, maybe even an intended effect of that, that the banks couldn't buy up lots of risky bonds, I mean, that sounds sort of like a good thing rather than a bad thing. Are you describing an unintended consequence, which is that they also couldn't be a buffer?
1: Yeah. You know, maybe the answer is something in the middle, which would have restrained the amount of risk they could take and therefore money they could lose, but would allow them to some degree to be there when, you know, there's 10 sellers for every buyer. You know, that unintended consequence is something that when you, you threw out the baby with the bathwater, you know, you, you lost something there and you don't see it in normal times, but you, you saw it in March. So fast forward now with me to March.
0: You don't have this big buffer. The banks are not capable of buying a lot of bonds when suddenly the prices go down. Suddenly everyone is panicking because we have a pandemic on our hands. What happened? How did the market break?
1: Well, it's important to know two other things in this story. Okay, One of them is over the past 12 years since the global financial crisis, the quantity of debt, the capital stock of bonds and loans issued by U.S. corporations went up by about 300%. So the amount of stuff out there held by people grew tremendously. Of course, the banks are not holding hardly any of it anymore. And the other thing is the question of who held it. So let me just for a second go back to 1995. I opened up my first account. I'd started it at Merrill Lynch after college, and I opened up a brokerage account, and I finally think I know a little thing or two about bonds. i have been... Doing it for a few years uh, in my college summers that gave me some confidence that maybe was was uh, misplaced, and so I wanted to buy a junk bond. And I remember my Merrill Lynch stockbroker telling me, uh, even though I'm in the business and I'm in this exact business, that this type of investment is unsuitable for me. I'm not a dentist who doesn't know very much about bonds compared to other things. I'm working at the at a bank in fixed income, yet I'm unable to buy a junk bond, because it's considered too risky, too complicated, unsuitable for retail. Now, if you fast forward to, to March, you have a market three times the size, and the retail investor grew to being the largest investor in the market. Approximately half of all of those bonds and loans are held by retail investors one way or the other through a myriad of products that are themselves um, interesting and, and in some cases responsible for some of the challenges we saw last month.
0: I don't want to miss out on the the punchline story of how the market broke, but I do want to follow your comment about how it came to pass that an investment in a high yield bond, in a junk bond that you couldn't make as an ordinary retail investor nearly 20 years ago, now is overwhelmingly where corporate debt is held. So say something about these vehicles, because what you're saying is that all of us basically own a whole bunch of corporate debt without fully realizing that. So ETFs are the most, exchange-traded funds are the most famous example, the most salient example. So describe how those work and how they enable people, for better or worse, and it sounds like maybe for worse, to hold these risky investments that in the olden days people thought were too risky even for you.
1: Yes. So prior to 2008, there were almost no ETFs that held junk rated bonds or loans but what we saw after it was incredible demand for yields global interest rates were cut we see negative interest rates in japan in switzerland and in lots of places around the world and there was not enough yield and people needed that to get their fixed income to meet their mortgage payments whatever it may be and so there was great demand at a time when stocks seemed like an uncertain investment the eye-popping yields after 2008 the average junk bond yielded more than 15%. And so that led to a rise in products that were also seeing tremendous growth themselves. And so exchange-traded funds stand out as the most um, the most obvious example, but you know, most people are familiar with mutual funds. The story would be the same in that those funds are special in that they're open-ended. They allow investors to exit every business day of the week and they allow them to exit almost in almost every instance at what's called net asset value. Um, and so the exchange-traded fund goes, so it's a share on the New York Stock Exchange that holds a big pool of assets, let's say junk bonds, okay? And because investors have a hard time accessing that market, you can't just buy a junk bond. Um, it's not on the New York Stock Exchange. It requires, you know, lots of special knowledge about how to execute in, in what's called an over-the-counter market. So ETFs were seen really as an incredible... Opportunity. You can give investors one-stop shopping where they get access to hundreds of bonds at the same time, um, whether they were carefully selected by a manager actively managing them or they represented an index like the Dow Jones or the S&P. The growth in that space was enormous. And at the same time, it was also growing tremendously for equities. The problem is that equities are highly liquid investments and ETFs that are promising investors they can get out the same day and are liquid in that they are trading with a difference between the price where you could buy or sell being just a penny, are holding things that are highly illiquid that at times have a a difference between where you could buy and sell at a dollar. And so it raises this question, was this financial alchemy? Did somehow the ETF and the mutual fund being a daily liquidity product, did it solve this illiquidity problem? Did it allow investors to get in and out seamlessly whereas they were unable to before?
0: And of course, from the standpoint of financial engineering, what you want is alchemy, right? You want it to work. You want to say, well, here is this ordinarily somewhat illiquid asset, corporate debt, or sometimes illiquid asset, but we want ordinary people to be able to get access to this high risk debt because they then they can get high yields. So if we bundle it in this way, then we can solve the problem somewhat magically. And it sounds like what you're saying is the magic didn't fully work and that it really didn't fully work in march when the market broke so maybe that brings us to the crucial moment in march what
1: happened yes so the magic doesn't work if there aren't enough buyers for every seller so if there is a seller of this etf and there's a buyer of the etf no animals were harmed in the filming of this movie no bonds need to be traded people can trade the shares of the etf back and forth back and forth without any bonds being traded and it's very important to understand that but at the moment where there's 10 sellers for every buyer and maybe it was hundred Which is what happens with retail investors. Retail investors are so pro-cyclical in their behavior. They sell when the market is falling as a group and they buy when the market is rising. And when they all headed for the exit in March, there weren't enough new buyers willing to buy. So then what happens? So what happened was there's a mechanism in the ETF meant to make this alchemy work, which is if ever there's too many sellers, you can just redeem your shares back to the market maker, back to the the institution that's overseeing this box, this pool, and they'll go and sell the bonds and they'll give you back your net asset value. So if if ever there are not enough buyers, they can go and sell bonds and take the cash from those sales and give you back your money. But the problem is that the bond market had frozen. It froze for the reasons we've already discussed. And there was just, there were no legitimately close bids for taking that risk near where the price of, of those shares were. And so we saw a degradation in the price of ETFs way beyond what the underlying bonds would suggest. And so if you invested a dollar and the pool was worth a dollar, just to put numbers on it, in the biggest ETFs, we saw an extra loss on top of the normal loss of 5% um, on some days in March. And in some smaller ETFs, we saw losses of 20 to 25% on top of what you lost for the COVID-related market sell-off. And so what happened was basically the market makers stepped back and said, we're not going to buy these ETFs for what they're worth because we can't get what they're worth because that's where the, the mismatch is. We have to give you your money today and it will take us weeks and months and who knows where we'll get out of those bonds. And so ETFs basically broke in March. And I think that's what's led the Fed to take the extraordinary step of buying high-yield ETFs and agreeing to. It's, it's you know, even just saying they would do it restored some confidence, but it was done really to just to keep the market from breaking further.
0: When that breaking was happening, was there a contractual violation there? I mean, mom and pop believed that they could redeem their ETF and the market maker was refusing to do it. So who bore that loss? I mean, did mom and pop bear that loss or did the market maker have to redeem and just do it at a big haircut?
1: So, in the initial trades, the market maker felt like, um, okay, I'll I'll buy them at NAV at net asset value. I'll buy them slightly lower, but at some point, they just kept buying them. And when something is for sale without the the market maker being able to offload the risk, they'll take a step back. What's supposed to happen is arbitrageurs are supposed to step in and say, I'll buy a dollar for 95 cents. I'll take on these portfolio bonds. I'll sell them myself. But again, in a broken bond market, people didn't have confidence of that. And that's where things really went off the rails.
0: What's the regulatory solution to that? I mean, you could imagine two directions. One is the insurance model that the government will give some insurance, which is de facto what actually happened. But that seems to create terrible incentives. Because then people will take on all kinds of risks they shouldn't take, because the government's effectively guaranteeing their investment. The other option would be to say, "Well, gee, maybe these ETFs can't be over-the-counter retail products sold to mom and pop if they're not actually capable of sustaining asset value at a moment when people run for the run for the hills." So in that theory, you know, maybe we should go back to the days when you couldn't buy junk bonds because it's actually too risky for mom and pop
1: you know, (laughs) as much as people don't want to talk about going backwards, I think we did go too far in the other direction. And it really was the perfect storm of retail being too big a player in the credit market. And I only mentioned, we only mentioned two products. I mean, there are products like collateralized loan obligations, um, closed end funds, uh, business development companies that all faced a similar fate, even if they didn't all have to sell on day one. They all had issues like margin calls and things that that all fed into this. And so, you know, the answer is probably somewhere where there is a regulatory limit on the amount of, of high-yield credit risk that should be in daily liquidity funds. Because it's it really is illusory, this idea that this thing that is so tricky to get in and out of gets packaged into a daily liquidity vehicle. It's really, in some ways, unsuitable. And it doesn't matter if it's not very big, but when it becomes the biggest player, It's incredibly important.
0: One crucial question that emerges from this part of the conversation that I had with Boaz is the regulatory question of whether, going forward, it's still safe for ordinary investors to hold mutual funds, ETFs, or other vehicles that expose them to substantial risk from high-yield corporate bonds, from junk bonds. The losses that took place in the market were not only a product of everyone wanting to sell at the same time, They also revealed, as Boaz suggests, an underlying decline in the value of the assets held by the ETFs or the mutual funds below what their aggregate value should have been even in a falling market. That's a puzzle, and it's a puzzle that's gonna have to be solved not just at the conceptual level, but at the practical, real-world regulatory level. I hope you enjoyed this special bonus conversation, and until I speak to you next time, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with research help from Zoe Wynn, and mastering by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lovell. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And one last thing, I just wrote a book called The Arab Winter, A Tragedy. I would be delighted if you checked it out. You can always let me know what you think on Twitter about this episode or the book or anything else. My handle is Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background.